thank you for um, being so understanding with the fact that we just didn't meet last week. We had so many people, uh, we had no childcare workers at all. We had half the staff was quarantined. We had uh, it, just people out all over the place. We're dropping like flies and it just felt like the kindest thing to do to just give everyone a week, right? And so um, we're th- grateful that we are the kind of church that can do that uh, and, and, and still just meet the next week and be okay. So uh, thank you for that. Um, and thank you for the band, as, as always. Um, they give a lot of time and energy to, to, to giving us uh, such, such great music, and so we are appreciative of it. Um, tonight, we are in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Technically, this was a lectionary passage for last week. Um, I had the sermon uh, written before last week, and we decided to cancel, and I just it means a lot to me what I was thinking about and what, it was, what I felt like it was speaking to me, so, so we kept it for this week. So if you uh, are someone who does joint custody and goes to other churches in the morning uh, who uh, may have been doing lectionary, you're, you're wondering why we're in the wrong passage. But we'll, we'll catch up. It's going to be okay. Uh, and tonight we're looking at a very famous, although very strange story from the beginning of John's gospel. Um, it, it's what, it constitutes what is John, Jesus' first uh, sign, is what it's called in John, this first sign or miracle uh, of his public ministry. Uh, and to me, this is a story that um, I don't know, it's a, it's a great example of the nature of Scripture and how layered and interesting Scripture can be, right? Now, I grew up in a church, and I grew up uh, kind of being told that, um, well, our church, we used to say all the time in our church that we just read the Bible and we just believe what the Bible says, and that's, and that's great, and, and I think that's a nice idea, and it fits well on a bumper sticker, um, but uh, as you get a little bit older and you begin to really engage in Scripture, what you realize the Scripture is just not quite that easy, right? It's not a math book. It's not just a kind of a straight answer book. It tells stories, and, and stories can be looked at a lot of different ways, and sometimes it's hard to know what a story is telling you. And I'm sure you've experienced that frustration if you've spent time engaging in Scripture. Like, what exactly is this trying to tell me? And if you take the story of Jesus at the wedding... Um, you can very easily get into that of saying, what exactly is this trying to tell us? In fact, I, I think there's probably seven or eight different sermons you could preach from this, a half of which I have. Um, and, uh, and I want to kind of look at it a little bit, uh, and then I want to look at, uh, ultimately, um, the hard questions that this story started uh, giving me uh, and kind of where that led this week. Let's go ahead and, and read through it, though. We're Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Actually, let me stop there for a second. So when we say wedding, don't think about wedding like we have a wedding where you um, begrudgingly show up for 30 minutes in the service just to make it through whatever long-winded thing the preacher's going to say so you can get to the good party afterwards. Um, this wedding is mostly party, right? Uh, you're talking about like five to seven days uh, feasting and having a good time. I mean, they knew how to throw a wedding, okay? So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a uh, you know, many Woodstock in town uh, to celebrate, uh, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the man's family would, would put it on. So that's what we're talking about here, and it'll make sense why I need to say that as we get a little bit later on into this passage. Third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, Mary's never mentioned by name in the Gospel of John, by the way. Uh, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. He just got these disciples in John, and now they're invited to this big party. When the wine gave out, when it ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? Pause there for a second. 
So, woman, I know as you read that, that, that sounds pretty darn rude, doesn't it, right? Um, and, and, uh, and it kind of is and kind of isn't. This is definitely not the word for mother. This is definitely not a term of endearment. Really, another translation uh, I really like, it says ma'am here. It's perfectly polite. It's not a rude thing. It's not like, who are you, woman, or something like that. But uh, it is definitely not generally the way you would address your mother. So there's, there's intended to be something here that feels like it's not quite as warm and intimate as you might expect between a mother and a son, right? Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So six jars used for Jewish rites of purification, 20 to 30 gallons. And this, this is the, um, uh, the water that you would use to ceremonially clean yourself before you went to the party and ate and, and all those kind of things. There's nothing special about the jars or holy about the water, um, but it's a, uh, it's a purification ritual you would go through uh, before you went to something like a wedding and ate and drank there. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Uh, again, a lot, lot here, right? Uh, six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, so 120 to 180 gallons worth here. He said to them, now draw some out, take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to, them, said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, right? Because at that point, what do they care what they're drinking? But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there for a few days. So kind of a weird story, and especially depending on what tradition you grew up in, it, gets, it can get real weird here, right? Because this story could be telling us so many different things. There's a lot of sermons, some good and maybe even one or two bad ones, that you can pull from this, Right? Jesus reserves his first public sign as an act of pure, unnecessary joy. Maybe that tells us something about the kingdom of God, right? Maybe there's something to the fact that that which is ultimately insignificant by most standards, right? We're running out of wine. I mean, it stinks, but really, is that, that big of a problem, right? That which is ultimately insignificant by most standards ends up important to God and to Christ because it's important to those that are there. There's a sermon there. Maybe it's a reminder that even the good stuff we enjoy right now is only a taste of the great stuff that is coming. That's definitely a sermon. Or maybe we look at those stone jars. Well, what is this process of Christ taking old religious forms and filling them with something new and something better for everyone's benefit? Or maybe we just look and we realize the kingdom of God is a party with abundance at its core so we can act accordingly. We don't have to act like it's scarce and there's a scarcity of things when the kingdom of God is about abundance. Or maybe you can do a bad sermon and just take a real literal reading of this and say, Jesus just wants you to keep drinking a lot, right? Again, not all sermons are good, but what is this saying? I've known some people that have kind of preached that last sermon, at least in their practice, if not from a pulpit. But I could do a sermon on almost any of these, and I have on a couple of them. And they might be what the story is telling us. 
One or two or all of them might be. I don't, I don't know. Scripture in interpretation is not an easy math, right? And Scripture also doesn't just give us all these lanes of interpretation and possible answers to questions. Scripture also gives us new questions as often as it gives us new answers. At least it does for me. And to be honest, as I was preparing this talk, I was more drawn to the problematic parts of this story. If you really pin it down and think about it. And I don't mean the wine. I don't personally have any problem with the fact that Jesus turned water into wine and people enjoyed it and it was, you know, fun. There's a lot of pastors that have a problem with that. I grew up with one of those pastors who somehow told us that this is wine, but it's not wine wine. People didn't really get drunk on this wine. Even though it says they got drunk on the wine in here, it's like back then wine was different than it was now. That's actually not true at all. Um, uh, if, if you think Jesus is against wine, there's, you've got some other things to reconcile here. That's not the way to do it. But there are some problematic parts to this story. Why, why isn't Mary named? Why isn't she named anywhere in the book of John? Why can't you just give her her name, right? Why does Jesus call her woman or ma'am instead of mother? What's going on there? Why wasn't Jesus seemingly more respectful or intimate in the way he talked to her? One of the questions I have, this isn't necessarily a super deep question, but had Jesus done the water-wine thing before? Because Mary kind of seems to think that he's going to know what to do, right? Which makes me wonder, like, is that like a nightly thing in Jesus' house? Which would have been pretty awesome if it was, right? Why do the servants listen to Mary and Jesus at all? They're not hosting the party. They're not the chief steward. They're just guests. Why do they get to direct them what to do, and why do they listen? Why would a servant, if I was a servant at this party and some random guy I did not know, Jesus has no public ministry yet, he's not considered a rabbi, says to me, take those jars, everyone wash their hands in, fill them with water, and then go bring that water to the chief steward, the guy you work for, I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. I like my job, thank you very much. Why do they listen to Mary and Jesus at all? It's not their wedding, right? What's the point of this? sign or this miracle if only Mary and the servants and the disciples know about it? Why doesn't he do it in front of everyone so that everyone can see? Why does Jesus say it's not his time and then act like it is his time? That bothers me about the story. I don't understand it, right? Does he change his mind? Was Mary right and he was wrong? I don't know. But really, the thing that most bothers me about this story and the most kind of problematic parts of the story is Jesus and Mary's interaction and their kind of seeming attitude towards each other and Jesus' attitude towards this whole thing. Why doesn't Jesus seem to want to help at first? Why doesn't he want to help? Why isn't he kind of Johnny on the spot and agreeing right away? That's a question I have about this. Why does Jesus need a nudge from Mary to quote-unquote do the right thing and help out in this situation? And does Mary know something about Jesus that Jesus do not, does not yet know? He says, it's not my time. She just go, acts like, oh, it's your time, and just moves on, right? And as it turns out, it was his time. Does she know something about him that he didn't know yet at that point? That would kind of mess with the way I was taught about Jesus, if that was true. Okay, let's pray. Have a great week. Scripture is full of stories like this that raise questions. Some of them uncomfortable, some of them weird, some unanswerable. 
And I don't think the right uh, response to that is to pretend like it's not there or to close the book and put it on the shelf. I believe in reading scripture. I believe in trying to interpret it. I believe in leaning in to the questions, even the disturbing ones. And I'll be honest, there's, there's a really disturbing question in here to me, one that really kind of haunted me a little bit, or still does, really. I believe in learning, leaning into it, though. I like to lean into those questions, even the disturbing ones, and I like to do two things. This is uh, not gospel truth. It's just how I go about it, and if you can learn something from it, so be it. I try to do two things when I lean into those hard questions. First, I try to find the truth about myself or the world in there, even a messy truth inside of that questionable thing. And then secondly, I try to find the path out of it, find the, the good news in the mess, right? Even if it doesn't answer everything, I try to find that light in whatever seeming darkness maybe that question raises. And that's what happened with me as I was preparing for this talk. Because to me, the most questionable part of the story, the kind of the most haunting question of the story, is again that exchange between Jesus and Mary and how they both behave around their disagreement here. And so I lean into it. I try and find the truth. And the first truth I find in this questionable part of the story is that this sounds like uh, this doesn't sound like a made-up relationship between a mother and son. This sounds exactly like the way a relationship between a mother and a son works. This sounds very realistic, right? Think about it. The mother is far more worried about how the party goes and the feelings of the host and the guests than the son is. That sounds about right. The mother tells the son what to do in order to fix the thing the son isn't really all that concerned with. That rape wraps up about 80% of parenting right there. Me telling my children how to fix a thing that they don't really care if it's fixed or not. That sounds very true to me. Third, the son is exasperated by the mother and her quote-unquote unreasonable demands upon him. Again, this checks out. The mother ignores the son's protest. That's gospel truth right there. The mother, who just treated the son like he doesn't know what he's talking about, still announces to everyone else that they should pay attention and do everything he says. Now, if this isn't parental, I don't know what is. I'm going to pick apart everything you say, and I'm going to question it, but I need everyone else to know that you're better than them. Right? If that's not, I mean, if that's not parenting again, I don't know what is. Sixth thing, the mother doesn't even try to win the argument. She just announces the verdict and leaves. We all know that's how it works. She walks away convinced she was right, and her son will act accordingly. And finally, uh, mama was right all along. All these things ring true to me. They just sound like the kind of relationship a mother has with a son, right? And none of that would seem out of the ordinary or questionable at all to any of us except that the son is Jesus, and we have these certain kind of thoughts of Jesus that it just doesn't quite fit with, right? It doesn't seem like it fits with the notions of how Jesus must have operated in the world and in relationships. Yes, Jesus was fully God and fully human and full humanity would come with things, but some of this stuff still makes us a little uncomfortable. We prefer Jesus kind of floated above the earth and didn't have these kind of real relationships sometimes. It's a questionable part of the story as I, as I read it, but I can find the truth about myself and the world and relationships in my own family if I look there. That one's a little easier but there's a more questionable part of the story, one that really is hard for me to think about. And I'm slower to confess to this being something I can relate to, but the truth is, I can. 
It's hard for me that Jesus is hesitant to perform the miracle that Mary knows is needed and is asking him to accomplish. That's a tough one for me. Jesus is hesitant to perform the miracle that Mary knows is needed and is asking him to accomplish. And here is a harder place to talk about the messy truth that I can relate to in this story. And that's Jesus' hesitation. I warn you ahead of time, if you haven't, you may not have heard a preacher confess to stuff like this in the past, and I apologize if this messes you up, but that's how we roll here. Now, I want to grant something before I get into this. I want to grant that the problem, again, in this story is kind of a minor one. The wine runs out. The host, obviously, would be humiliated. It'd be something people talked about for a long time in town, and that's no fun. But I'm not sure it's a 10 out of 10 on the deep needs scale, right? This would be like the, my computer's not working right now, first world problem kind of deal, right? So let's, let's confess that. We'll, we'll own that. Sarah and I once threw a dance party that no one showed up to. It was slightly embarrassing, um, but mostly funny because on the grand scale of problems, who cares, right? And we have you know, made a lot of jokes about it since. So even if we grant that this particular problem is not that big a problem, can we be honest and say that we are at least a little familiar with the feeling Mary has towards Jesus here? Because if you tell me that you've never felt like God wasn't as concerned about, uh, about something as you were, I'm not sure I believe you. If you claim to me that it has never seemed to you like Jesus was dragging his heels on something that felt like a life and death problem to you, maybe literally was a life and death problem, then you and I have had very different spiritual lives because I've experienced this a lot. I'm very familiar with the confusion and frustration that comes with the sense that Christ might be hesitant when I don't think Christ should be. I have asked, why aren't you doing something about this many times in my life? Honestly, often in my life, I'm asking that question. I'll bet you have as well. And I'm okay with that. I don't think that's a problem. Now, there are some strains of Christianity and, and Christian theology that will use stories like this and this kind of problem that's put before us and put the emphasis back on us. And they'll talk about this story and Mary here as being a model for how we are supposed to work God over and nudge God towards doing things, right? Jesus wasn't going to do anything. Mary essentially pesters him into it, and we should do the same. We should uh, pray a lot. We should have faith. We should do all these things, right? It's on us to push things forward, which could make some logical sense in why we pray and what that means. But it's this idea of, like, let's say your friend is having a health crisis. What do you do? You gather the group of faithful. You get to work. You pray. You anoint with oil. You plead with God until God finally acts the way you think God should. Of course, there's a backside to that too, isn't there? Because what happens when they weren't healed? What happens when the job doesn't come through? What happens when the business fails or the divorce still happens? Well, then you, you should have had some more faith. You should have prayed harder. You should have believed more. You should have had the kind of faith that isn't just tossed about by the waves, as it says in Scripture, if you look at that verse that way. You should have been better in your convincing of the Lord through your prayer and through your faith. 
It's probably not going to surprise you in the way I'm talking about it right now. I can't believe that's how it works. You may, and you may be right. I don't think that's how it works. I'm not saying I have a good answer for why people, some people get better and others don't, why sometimes things work the way that they feel like they should and other times they don't. I don't have that answer. If I did have that answer, I'd already have relocated to a private island based on the book sales alone. I don't believe God needs God's arm twisted harder to make things happen, and that's on us. I just can't conceive of how that would work. In that scenario, my goal was to make God as good and as concerned and as loving as me. And that's just, a, uh, that's, that's pretty sad if that's who God is for me. If God's not at least already better than me, I'm not sure what I believe, right? So why doesn't it seem like God is as concerned or quick to act as it seems like God should? I don't know. I wish I did, but I, I don't know. It's hard, and it's messy, and it's heartbreaking, and I just don't have the answer. I would give it to you if I did. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you that no one does. And anyone who claims I do have the answer as your first sign, you should stop listening to them, in my humble opinion. It's a mystery we just don't have a choice but to live with. And it's a hard mystery. It's cost many a people their faith, sometimes understandably. But it is a messy truth about my life that I can find in this disturbing part of the story. There are times when it feels like God is not acting as quickly or in the way I feel like God should, and that is hard. But didn't you say something about trying to find the good news or the light here, Mike? How about a little of that because you're really depressing me right now? As I leaned into this question and I found myself in this messiness and in these questions, I also found some good news in Mary's response. We can see Mary's reaction as a typical mother's response, but I think we can also see it as a model of faith in a difficult world in a messy world of waiting like we live in. Now, in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1, we're given this very simple uh, definition of faith. I like verses like this in the Bible. It's kind of Bible for dummy stuff, right? It says this in Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Again, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I see faith in Mary. Mary has no guarantee that Jesus will address the problem that so concerns her, but she acts with confidence in what she hopes for. She has no guarantee that Jesus will do what she wants, when she wants, or how she wants. We're not even sure she has a plan in mind, necessarily. She doesn't lay it out. But she does seem to have supreme confidence that Jesus can be trusted with the problem. And he certainly doesn't need to run his solution by her first. And in the end, in this story, Jesus does address it. 
Jesus fixes the problem, and he doesn't just fix the problem, he fixes it with abundance that no one would ever expect or anticipate. It doesn't even make sense to those that experience it. Who knows if that's what Mary had in mind. Maybe she was just hoping to get a couple more gallons out. Who knows if that's what she had in mind. My bet is that Jesus' response was far more extravagant than she even hoped. But ultimately, it seems to me that this is what faith has to look like in our messy world and in our messy lives. As frustrating and as painful as it is to feel like God is hesitating or just plain ignoring what is so important to me, can I trust that in the end, there will be abundance? Even if it doesn't come in the way I want on the timeline I want. Maybe it's not even on this side of eternity because this life is not a sitcom, right? Things don't wrap up neatly in 30 minutes or less and everyone goes home happy Sometimes people don't get better. Sometimes the nightmares come to pass. Sometimes things are just bad, and it feels like God should have stopped it. But when all is said and done, faith is about believing that the party will get better and more extravagant than I could ever imagine. And faith guides me to believe that the humiliation and empty glasses of today don't get the final word. That someday the real party starts. That all of the shame and loss and pain and disappointment and hunger and thirst of this broken world are not the end of the story. There's a better story coming. That although it feels like this might be all there is, though it feels like God is slow to act or apathetic to our lot or even ignoring us altogether, he is God incarnate. He is with us. He is just as thirsty as we are. And there will be a great rejoicing. There will be a banquet table that does not end. The best wine has not yet been served. And I know depending on where you're at right now, depending on where I'm at any given day, that sounds really Pollyanna and almost stupid. But I have seen the difference it makes when all is said and done. I've witnessed it. So it's not easy. The questions aren't always answered. Things don't go the way we want them to. This world is hard. Our lives are hard. But maybe we like Mary, can take a deep breath and confidently walk into the mess. Maybe we can trust in what we have experienced about the extravagance of God and live confidently into what is not yet here. Maybe we can have faith like Mary had faith. And maybe even some days be strong enough to tell others along the way, it's going to be okay, just do what he says. Let's pray. God, we confess that we are often as faithless as we are faithful. God, more often than not, I just want answers. I just want it to make sense. I just want to know what you're up to and why and how it's going to work.
And God, for reasons I don't claim to understand, that I don't think anyone in this room would claim to understand, we just don't get things that way here. Sometimes the glasses are empty and it's humiliating and we don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes it feels like you're dragging your feet. And so God, we pray for the gift of faith. We pray that we will remember who you are and what you have already done and who you have shown yourself to be. God, we pray for the faith that comes when we have confidence in that which we don't see yet. God, may we be a people who are led and steered by the party that is to come. May we be a people who deeply and truly know that the good wine hasn't even showed up yet. God, we do love you, and we ask all things in your name. Amen.